Welcome to episode 9 of Handcraftsmanship in the Digital Age, conversations about work with people who think with their hands and some who don't. My name is Strother Purdy, and we're here today with Paula Sparks. Paula happens to be my wife's best friend, a master jewelry maker, and currently a carpenter. She's thankfully quite generous with her time, and this is what happened. Yeah, so after I read all your questions, it made me really reflect that I have spent like my whole life working with my hands in one capacity or another. You know, I started in high school and then in college making jewelry and then got a degree in art education as sort of the backup plan. Like teaching was never the end goal, although I really enjoy kids. So I had started my business as a jeweler and then was teaching in an art museum for about three years. So I would teach two days a week and I had the luxury of teaching kids who signed up families paid. And so they wanted to be there. And I had small class sizes, maybe 10 kids. I would literally just write up a material list and hand it over to a museum staff member and materials would just show up in my classroom. Like, as far as I know, I don't even know if there was a budget. They just bought what I asked for. So that was kind of fun. But at the same time, I was starting my jewelry business where I would design it, make my pieces you know, pay for a booth fee, go set up a 10 by 10 tent and had done that, you know, all over the Midwest. But I was just starting that at the same time that I was teaching. And so I let go of the teaching because I realized I could make more money in an art fair in one weekend than I could a whole year of teaching because I was only teaching two days a week. But so had a jewelry business for 20 I don't even know how many years I'm at now with the pandemic. I don't know if I sub subtract or whatever, but so that's been maybe 28 years of being creative with my hands and really having sort of the luxury of making my own pieces and then hoping somebody would buy them and supporting myself in the meantime, and certainly some rocky years with the economy. But, um, and then I had another transition where my girls were little and my marriage was failing and I knew that I, I didn't want to be on the road for five days or a week at a time. Like that just wasn't feasible. So I did the work to get recertified to teach and was lucky to get a job teaching art in the Madison school district. And the schedule really lined up beautifully with the girls. And it was super fun to be creative with little kids, right? They're just, they're not a tough crowd. Um, and so that was really joyful for a while until it wasn't because of the school district and it's just difficult teaching. So I kind of had an escape. I had to figure out, I call it my escape plan. Um, and it took me about a year to really pick what I wanted to do. I was driving past Madison College, which is a technical college, and they have a construction remodeling program. And on their parking lot, you can see that the students are building tiny sheds and a tiny house. And then I just got totally geeked out about it. So I called the program, showed up. One of the instructors was gracious enough to just give me a whole tour of the two different shop spaces in addition to the tiny houses. And he sat down with me with a computer and showed me the schedule. And, and it was a pretty big leap of faith. It was a year program, but I had built houses with Habitat for Humanity when I lived in Chicago, when I met Dinah, your lovely wife. 
and just have always loved home remodeling projects. So that's kind of what I wanted to do for the next chapter of my life. And I was 49 when I went back to school, which is no small potatoes. And so now, three years later, I am a carpenter and work in the construction field, primarily residential remodeling, which is perfect for me because it suits sort of my fine detail and the company I work for now, we do a bunch of different projects and I still get to be creative every day and it benefits a homeowner or a family. You know, I get to improve their living space and I still get to work with my hands and different tools. Uh, I have 400 questions. So okay. bear with me. <laughs> I want to go all the way back to the beginning because this is a fantastic life arc uh, between um, starting out with jewelry and ending up with carpenter, not ending up, but this current stage in carpentry. Yeah. What was it that got you into jewelry initially into making had, it rather than yeah. just liking it? I had a high school friend whose name was Melinda Graff, and I always want to give her props. She was one of my bandmates um, the first couple of years of high school, and she took one of the art classes offered at our high school, which was jewelry making, and she loved it. And she said, Paula, you got to sign up for this. You got to try it. And I thought, well, okay, you seem pretty jazzed about it. So I'll give it a try. And that was really like, I just knew at 17 that that's what I wanted to do. Had you done any handwork making things before the class? Did you grow up with a house shop? My dad was not handy at all. He was totally averse to reading instructions. And so I didn't have anybody as an example until my aunt started dating this man and he was a teacher and he loved to buy antique furniture and refinish it. And he would do that in his summers and he would drive around at flea markets. And the summer that I was 12, they flew me out for a month and a half and I worked in his shop and he taught me how to strip furniture, sand it, stain it, refinish it. He taught me how to revive silver metal that was tarnished, how to reupholster furniture. And I really liked being in his workbench. And I like, he would play music from maybe the 30s or the 40s, like the Andrews sisters and old timey jazz. And, you know, and he, they lived up in the foothills of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And the shop faced over the valley and it was just, it was beautiful. And then I remember too being in the driveway and my friend Karen and I thought, we're going to build a box. And all my dad had was this like terrible MDF part or something. And those old hand saws, we did not know what we were doing, but we just started cutting up this hunk of, you know, OSB or whatever it was, and then trying to assemble a very sad looking <laughs> box. I don't know what we thought we were going to do with it. But we had all the confidence in the world and a couple, you know, hammer nails and a little saw. That was it. Can you talk about what do you love about it? What kept you going with it? What was the, the attraction? I think I just love, you know, whatever it is I do, there's a tangible, there's a tangible object at the end. And just that satisfaction of cutting a material, assembling it, constructing it, you know, facing challenges, sort of flying by the seat of your pants, but always, I think this is love of the material and the tool combined. And for me, it just quiets my brain. 
you know, it's sort of, I don't know if it, if it uses the left and the right side of the brain at the same time, it sort of cancels out all that inner chatter that I have. And so that's also a byproduct, but I just have always loved, I remember being seven and my mom at the time was selling Avon makeup and they would get these promotions where they would send jewelry. And so I had this little Avon ballerina necklace and there was sort of a rivet in the middle of the legs and the ballerina legs would move, but my necklace broke, of course, because it was costume jewelry. And I remember being seven and sitting at my little vanity dresser in my bedroom. And I was literally using fingernail clippers as pliers to like open and close like, I don't know how I thought I could fix it. It just was this innate thing. Like I'm going to, I'm going to use what I have in my resources and those will become tools. That innate sense. That's fascinating. It just naturally occurred to you to pick up tools to fix something. Yeah. Not having any previous example or seeing anybody in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up with, my dad worked in the military. My mom was a nurse. Nobody I knew earned a living as an artist or was creative or, I mean, my friends didn't, none of their parents had even shops or, you know, workbenches in their garage. Like I didn't have any example until my uncle came along. Um, You mentioned the phrase inner chatter to describe something that goes away when you work. Uh, Again, that's, that's fascinating and kind of central to what I'm, I'm looking into here. Can you talk a bit more about that? Is it something special in the handwork that makes the inner chatter go away? Uh, does the inner chatter go away when you do other things or what's, what's the specific do you feel is the relationship? You know, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me until I read something about knitting and another author had a blog and then described knitting as how it uses both, you know, the left and the right side of your brain. And because it's using both sides of those, it sort of cancels out. And it, for the most part, it does with carpentry because, it's still new enough to me where I really have to focus. Like I'm not on autopilot when I do anything yet. So I don't have inner chatter when I'm at work. And when I sit down at the jewelry bench, it's just, it just centers me, right? Like that's my place and that's my calming place. And so, you know, the ability to kind of think things through about, you know, am I going to enamel or am I going to make something with a stone and what steps? And then, all of a sudden you're just doing it. And I put a little calming music on in the background and, and that just sort of cancels out, you know, all the anxiety or worry or thoughts or the to-do list in my head. Do you get that with other types of work that you wouldn't really consider, you know, things that you need to get done or to make or to, or, you know, office work? No, never. Like that, it's not satisfying to do paperwork, right? For me, it isn't. A lot of people, it might be. So really, it's it's the process of I need to have a tool in my hand and a material in my hand. So knitting does the same thing. I have two needles, so both hands are occupied, and the yarn is my material. And if I'm making jewelry, then it's a pair of pliers or it's a torch or, you know, it's a paintbrush because I'm painting enamels on silver. And with carpentry, it's the same thing, right? I either have a piece of wood or uh, material or cedar or poplar, and I'm at, the, I'm at the chop saw or I'm at the table saw, or I have my tape measure or hand tool. So again, it's a tool and a material, like that's the recipe for me. And I don't, I don't any other medium, you know, jewelry, carpentry, knitting, fibers, not paperwork, not spreadsheets, 
not the checkbook. <laughs> have you had a have you had an office job? Uh, one of yeah. the I've had a lot of office jobs in my in my teens and in my early 20s. I had a bunch of different office jobs and I was really good at organization numbers, fast typer. Um, I worked I worked at this car dealership in high school and it was sort of the beginning. It was the mid 80s and, you know, word processes were coming out and you could build a file with a database with names and addresses. And so at this dealership, which they sold Mercedes-Benz and Jaguars, my job was to send out mailings for people who needed service done to their vehicles, oil changes or whatever. And I did get a little satisfaction of creating this mailing list and like merging the document and printing these stickers, you know, and this was the eighties. And I was quite good at it to the point where the service manager said, Holly, you need to slow down. Like we're overbooked. We can't, we can't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Now, there, there's a backhanded compliment. I know, <laughs> Stop right? Stop doing such a good job. <laughs> Stop doing such a good job. And in college, I had a job. I worked at a um, scientific lab that it was the state lab, but the building was on the UNM campuses in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And again, it was sort of a data entry job for the screeners that were screening cells and slides and stuff like that. And kind of the same thing where you're in a building with no windows, there's fluorescent lighting, you're sitting at your chair all day, like none of that is appealing to me. And in my early twenties, when I moved, I moved to Missouri and I couldn't get a job teaching. There just weren't any positions. So I went through a temp agency. They placed me at a railroad. So I was working at this place called Springfield Railway and they had a big warehouse where train cars would come in that needed like brake couplers fixed or they were wrecked and needed new parts or they needed to be painted. So my data entry job was to manually enter all of these different codes for materials that went into repairing a rail car so that accounting could bill these companies. And again, it was sitting at a desk all day in terrible fluorescent lighting, strapped, you know, 10 hours a day. Like I literally just was crawling out of my skin. I couldn't do it. I didn't want to do it. Do you find joy in what you do as a carpenter in and jewelry making? And if so, what leads to that joy or creates that joy? And did you ever find joy in those office jobs that made you crawl out of your skin? And if so, where was it? The, the joy in the office jobs was with the, pre, the people that I worked with. That was really the silver lining. I'm an extrovert. I like relationships. I like community when I'm working. And at the railroad, I had a, you know, I'd have a couple of breaks a day and I would go out to the shop, the warehouse, they had a basketball hoop and I would play um, basketball with the guys in the shop. And so that was sort of my joy. And now when I work as a carpenter, my joy is it's someone's home they're going to live in and there's a goal in sight with what it needs to be when we're all done. You know, if we're taking out windows, then we have to do demo first. We have to remove trim carefully if we're going to resalvage it and put it back on. Or, you know, when we put the new window in, it's got to line up specifically, let's say on the inside of a bedroom, there's, you know, there's a paint light and the homeowners don't want to they don't want to spend a lot of money painting. So when we put the windows in, 
it has to be specific. It has to be level. It has to be plumb. Maybe there's chair rail that butts up to the window. And so there's some challenges and there's an end goal that you're, you're taking it apart. You're putting in new materials, new trim, and it has to be precise and it has to look really good. And I get a lot of joy from that challenge. You know, when you're done, you still have something tangible to look at whether or not it's a piece of artwork that someone's gonna wear or it's in someone's home that they're gonna see on a daily basis. That's the joy right there. And the challenge, you know, getting to problem solve with, you know, how do I make this rabbit on the table saw? And, you know, we've cut this and now we have to make this work. And so there's a lot of problem solving that's rewarding. Like I wouldn't be suited for commercial work where they're building a new, you know, 20 or 50 foot, 50 unit apartment building. And, you know, I interviewed with this company where they had, they had a list by the door and with each unit, they tracked your time and, you know, you got like a half an hour to put in a door and they'd said, Oh, we have this guy and he can put in a kitchen in a half a day. And I thought, I don't want this sort of mass production in my carpentry field. Like that's not how I see my career going. Say in the uh, the rail yard work you did or at the car dealership, uh, there isn't that tangible sort of sense, say you've made somebody happy by ensuring their car got the oil change on the schedule that it needed. That, uh, I mean, it's sort of a bit of a straw man, I guess I'm throwing up in my head, but that yeah. that connection, that sense of satisfaction just isn't isn't the same. It's not there. You know, for me, that feels like administrative work and I don't get to meet the person who's going to come in and pick up their car um, or at the rail yard. I'm not going to meet I'm not going to meet the conductor who's driving, you know, these trains across. It's too abstract. There's like there's no connection for me. It's not a, it's not a product. It's just paperwork. <laughs> well, it's just paperwork. <laughs> well, with bureaucracies, the product is the paperwork. And it, it, in some way, it's quite fascinating just how much human culture has celebrated bureaucracy and paperwork across all these thousands of years. We love creating piles and piles of paper. Yeah. Um, but it's not. The, you know, even it's, when I was changing, it's not satisfying. And again, it's like it's completely lacking a human element. And connection and you know when I was teaching I remember you know we'd go to the professional development meetings and and then one year they introduced you know this data tracker and these targeted goals and I'm thinking we're talking about eight and nine year olds or kindergartners right like that like creating this whole data to track their process is yeah. a whole other person's job and I didn't feel like for art I didn't feel like it was critical or that it mattered. Like for me, what matters is, you know, does that kid feel good about themselves? When they walk in the room, are they happy with the paintbrush in their hand, right? Is it giving them confidence and self-esteem? That's what matters. And I think for bureaucracy, people can't track that, right? Those are emotions and feelings. It's not yeah. numbers and data. It's not a spreadsheet. Yeah, that's alien. The, the, the actual person is quite alien to the whole bureaucratic system. It allows us to do things to each other, I think, that we wouldn't do personally, <laughs> because we would mm -hmm. see the emotional consequence of it, and that would um, make us do something different, or at least I hope make us do something different. Um, <laughs> I, I'm curious about your learning process, in that uh, a common criticism I get 
uh, from people who don't often work with their hands is that they don't have the patience to to make something. It's it's too difficult. It's it's uh, uh, troublesome. But in talking with other carpenters or so on, there's this sense of yeah, I just you know I worked with enough like as you you've described. I worked with an uncle. I just did this work over the summer. Do you feel you have have to have patience for this learning, or just does it just come super easy? What do you find easy to learn? What do you find difficult to learn? Well, so there's like a couple. That's like a little multi-layered question, which I it love, by the way. Um, so my learning style, which I know about myself, is that I can't teach myself. I mean, I can, but my, my brain loves to see somebody do it. And then I could watch and I say, oh, that makes sense. You know, and in the trades, you may encounter, I encountered some some people whose style was to just verbally tell you what to do. And I would say, unless I can see it, it doesn't make sense to me. So if you could draw it or get like a scrap piece of wood and sort of kind of explain what the end product is going to look like. So I know that's my learning style. I've already forgotten the other two parts of your question. Can you, <laughs> can you tell I have, me? To I have as well. It's quite all right. <laughs> um. About your about your learning style, what do you find easy to learn and what do you find difficult to learn? So you've addressed, you know, that that you enjoy being able to see it done versus being told how to do it. And mm -hmm. this is curious to me. I'm taking a Tai Chi class where the instructor refuses to speak and just he shows it to us three times, then does it with us three times. And then we're supposed to do it on our own three times. And I am lost. I watch how he does it and I I can I can shadow him while he does it, but I then can't remember it how he does it. Another instructor came in on another day and spoke while she demonstrated, saying, This is called this, this is called that. And I found it much easier to remember the, the moves when I had, shall we say, a label for each of them. We had the vocabulary to attach it to, and so that enhanced your learning. Yes. Right. So for me, like my learning style is, um, especially with trim work, right? If someone says, oh, you need to do X, Y, Z, unless I see the finished trim or a photo of what it needs to look like, it doesn't make sense to me. Like I need that visual reference. My brain, and I know a lot of people are great with that, but I need to see, I need to see the end result. And so if I have that and someone like you said, with your Tai Chi, if they demonstrate it and also talk about it as they're doing it, right? Like maybe you're doing a miter cut or maybe you need to change the angle or a compound angle. So if they show me and they also tell me why they're doing it and why it matters and how it relates to the next step, then all of that helps my learning. But in the absence of, you know, let's say somebody demoed something out and they said, okay, now you're going to go in this room and you're going to do this, but it makes no sense to me. Are there specific things you have great difficulty learning? Um, I, I find learning things, reading certain types of technical books, I, I get cross-eyed and I just cannot get into them. But is there a particular, you know, not just not just in the trades or say, you know, a difficult tool technique or something, but outside, are there areas that you just find it's it's it feels like it's not for me? Yeah. So one of the things that jumps to my mind is the concrete and form work. And we did have a class on that in our program. And in order to build a foundation that's then going to be poured with concrete, you have to sort of build 
what I in jewelry I would call it a mold, right? You have to have sort of these um, walls that are built and braced so that when they pour the concrete in, it has something to cure against. You know, like if you were casting and you had a plaster Paris mold or something like that, you have to have something already for that negative space to be filled with the material that is going to be existing. And then those forms get broken down. And for me, I just thought, I don't know why this just isn't interesting to me, right? And it's it, it's incredibly valuable and 100% necessary. You can't build a house or a structure without a foundation. And, you know, even if you're building a, de a deck, you need, you know, piers or a form. And for me, and I think again, because it's sort of that, it's almost the negative of the, the final product. My brain is just not, I can't wrap my head around it that's like a real a, a difficult thing for me. Same thing with framing. I noticed last year we built a garage and the roof line was just bonkers. You know, they changed it and um, they had to make these, they had the ridge line, they had the rafters, the angle was wonky. And again, it just, it made no sense to me because it didn't already exist. Like you had to, those angles, like geometry, I really struggle with. I struggled with it in, in high school. And there, there's a lot of complicated math that goes involved in building a roof or rafters or, you know, trusses are great. They come pre-made, you know, they're going to go every, you know, however many increments. But same thing for that. Like, it's just the concept is my head does not compute. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I remember when a good friend uh, showed me a, a framing square and said, this is a calculator. And uh, then he talked on for the next 20 minutes explaining how it was, and it all went over my head. Yeah. But yeah, there are, it's quite complex, the uh, the angles and the, the three-dimensional geometry. It is a, it's a real challenge. Paula, you're a fantastic jewelry maker. You're truly a, a master or a mistress or however, or whatever proper term. Um, you're very, very good at it. At what point did you know you were good at it? Or do you feel you're not quite there yet? What's I feel like I'm, I feel like I am there in a lot of ways with what I like to do, but I'm also really humble about it, right? Because, you know, I don't know if other artists do this, but, you know, they say there's that phrase that comparison is the thief of all joy. But I know that there are certain things that I'm very proficient at and my craftsmanship is really good. And I don't know when I realized that. I think in college, I would get easily frustrated when I wasn't good at something right away. And I had to really work to get better at it. But I think I would say maybe in my early to mid-20s is when I really started to kind of gain confidence. And then it wasn't maybe even until my 30s, so maybe 10 years later, that I really felt even some sort of proficiency. You know, now I feel, I feel pretty confident about it. Um, but I also recognize too, because I don't spend every day making jewelry anymore, that when I do, you know, my craftsmanship's not quite as tight. And with metal, you know, if I make a lot of really tiny, small pieces, and if you're soldering it, you want that solder seam to be really smooth. You don't want any little gaps or air holes. Um, and I'm still pretty good, but I do recognize it from not making jewelry on a daily basis that I'm not quite as proficient as I was. You know, I think craftspeople really, you could hone it, but then there's also that daily practice 
of, of doing. But I also think that with, you know, with all of that, the daily challenges, you know, pushing yourself and learning new things. And that's the joy, right? Because we can all just make the same thing over and over and over again. But to challenge yourself, that's where the real satisfaction comes in. How how so? What is the satisfaction in that challenge? That is, um, you know, my brain just gets tired of making the same stuff. And for many years I did, there was a wholesale show out in Philadelphia that I would do twice a year and gallery owners or gift shop owners would come in and they would buy and place orders. And then I would go home and I would mass produce all these pieces. And there's no joy in that because there's no challenge. Like you make something a hundred times or a thousand times, you know exactly how it's going to turn out. And it's, it's no longer creative, right? So for me to, hmm. to make a cloisonne enamel piece, that's really rewarding because it's different every single time, you know, and you can change your technique a little bit, or you could create, you know, negative spaces in it, or you could set a gemstone or you could, you know, there's so many more variables. So that's the joy in working with your hands is to constantly keep making something that you haven't made before. Is it a, a joy in discovering what uh, a new aspect of the material or uh, uh, is it the surprises or is it, um, what is it? Well, when I'm working with silver, it pretty much behaves the same way, you know, every time, unless I'm working with fine silver and I melt it and I kind of change the shape or the form or reticulate it. Otherwise it's pretty, silver's not necessarily malleable, you know, it's a pretty um, rigid material. So for me, the joy is kind of, if, once I throw the enamel in, that's always, it's unpredictable. It's like glaze on a piece of pottery. You've got a kiln involved and, and then you sort of, and, and maybe that's why I love it because you have to let go of this source, this sort of sense of need to control, or mm. you have to just accept that there is no such, there's no such thing as perfect because we're humans. We're not machines. Things are unpredictable. Yeah, could you explore that a bit more? That sense of I've I, I've heard that in a in a number of the interviews, that sense of what 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 one's work teaches to the rest of life, uh, what wood has taught me about life. Um, what have what is your jewelry making? What has your carpentry taught you? Yeah, definitely patience. It's taught me kind of resilience. It's taught me. Um, I mean, I'm naturally a motivated person. And, you know, for a lot of people, they say, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't work from home or I couldn't work in my own shop. And for me, that's, that's never been the issue for me. It's sort of been the opposite of this work-life balance, right? Because I think, oh, but I could always work. And, um, you know, wood for me is such a different medium than metal in the way that when you cut it, you can subtract it. And, with metal, you can subtract it, but just not as easily. You know, you can maybe file it and coax it to bend a certain way. There are a lot of artists and jewelers who love metal smithing and forming, and, you know, they'll have anvils and big wooden stumps, and they'll, you know, maybe make hollow forms or bowls or spiculums and bend the metal. And I don't love it that much. For me, what I love is I love texture 
and I love things that move. And so um, like this morning I was in the studio and I lost track of time because I was making your lovely wife, my bestie, some earrings for Christmas. And oh. I had, there's sort of a, sort of a jump off of a design that I had made before. But when I, when I bend the metal a different way or I connect the pieces in a different way, that's where the joy is for me, you know, making handmade chains, texturing metal, and then combining those things. And wood is just, it's a totally different, I don't know, I don't have that relationship yet with wood because I'm still learning. But wood, I think in a lot of ways, it can be more forgiving. I don't know if I answered <laughs> your question or if I just went off on a tangent. <laughs> no, no, that's this is brilliant. This is exactly uh, uh, what I'm hoping for in a, in a good interview is uh, uh, to not have a, I don't want a, a yes, no answer to a question kind of a thing, but where your mind goes, uh, where, where, where does handwork lead you in your head? And what, what comes to mind, those associations? Started over. The other thing I wanted to say that jewelry making has taught me is, um, you know, I never considered myself a perfectionist, but then I realized that, I kind of was, and then I had to just let go of that and then accept that, you know, it's handmade. And I remember being at an art fair and my sister telling a customer, maybe it was Dinah, um, someone had complained like there was a little lump or a blob or something. And then, and then I think my sister said, yeah, isn't that awesome? It's handmade and we don't even charge extra for that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great response, but, um, so yeah, I think it's taught me to sort of relax a little and go with the process. And, you know, it's always really humbling. You never know if what you're making is really going to turn out the way you want, or if you have to start over and, and then kind of pivot. Yeah. With making good making is never an act of will. It's an act of negotiation, I think. Yeah. That's a great way to describe it. I can think of many times that uh, projects have handed me my butt. There you go, sir. There's your butt. Ah, <coughs> uh, all right. There it okay. is. Hope you like it. Thought I could impose my will upon this piece of wood, but no. I know. And for Not me, possible. sometimes I'm like a dog with a bone, right? I've spent so many hours on this piece. And sometimes you just have to scrap it. And letting go of that and realizing it just did not work out and you just start over, that is a tough pill to swallow. Taking your lumps. <laughs> um, a question of identity has often come up in people who would feel a strong difference between saying, I do carpentry work or I am a carpenter or I make jewelry versus I am a jeweler. Um, where do you fall in that continuum? And do you see yourself in your work? That's a really awesome question. And yes, I see myself in my work and I tend to go with, uh, I am a jeweler. I am a metalsmith. I am an enamelist and I am a carpenter. You know, even though I'm not proficient at it, I'm working with wood, I am a carpenter. And so, you know, for good or bad, that's how I've always related of, you know, what my career is, that's my identity. And with this shift of, not making jewelry every day and not doing, you know, 10 or 15 art fairs a year. 
it's been really, it's been tricky to kind of make that adjustment. And I don't have as much interest in making jewelry because my body is physically tired and my brain is worn out. And on the weekends, I really just want to relax, hang out with my kids and I have other life things I have to do. Um, so that's been, that's also been really humbling for me is letting go of that identity of, you know, is what I do who I am and kind of selfishly. So, right. You know, making, there was a time in my thirties where I thought, why does this matter? You know, like I'm just making these little objects and sure people buy them, but am I really making an impact in the world or the community? And that's when I kind of started volunteering and, and then the, um, my mom's partner at the time, he was a farrier and worked with horses his whole life. And he said, you know, sometimes it's just what you're making and people buy it and it makes them happy, right? That's the end result is it's kind of selfish. I get to be creative and make make a tangible object, but the person buying it, it brings them joy on a daily basis. They may wear it, it may sit on a dresser, they may wear it once a year, they may wear it every day, but but knowing that I have made this piece of artwork or jewelry that someone's enjoying, that gives me meaning as well. However selfish that might be. Um, as usual, your, your responses are giving me 12 different questions in 12 different ways. And of course, I'm gonna lose my train of thought to remember all of them. But speaking about purpose, about you know why am I making this this bit of of jewelry? Why am I repairing this house? Why am I uh, creating a database for people's oil changes and a computer? Uh, any of those that sense of purpose that we get from our work, how it relates to our identity, uh, and also how we that inner chatter, how it feeds into our inner chatter. Because if somebody looks at a piece of my work and says, well, this could have been better, I can take that very personally and say, well, you know, screw you. Um, mm -hmm. I did the best I could. And what you're, you're, you're essentially insulting my existence by saying <laughs> that this is a crummy piece of work. Uh, can't you notice the nice things about it? Because there are some nice things. Right. Uh, and you know, so and would they do that, like... They say that comment to you, but would they do that in other industries or other fields, right? And if their boss at work said that to them, how would it make them feel? Yes. Right? It's so invalidating is what it is. Yes, yes. How we get satisfaction, as you as you put it, from the joy of what you create and the person that says, oh, this is beautiful. Thank you. Uh, I will use it. I will wear it. I will have it. There's the satisfaction. Uh, and so many of our, so much work and so many jobs don't have that element. How many people call to thank you for scheduling the oil change? Uh, your, even your boss gave you a backhanded compliment by saying right. you're doing it too well. Well, I mean, there have been a few instances where people haven't been happy with their jewelry. And I've told them, you know, if it's a custom piece and I'm mailing it, you know, they'll want to see a picture before. I don't really like doing that. I mean, I know it's necessary, but I feel like they need, you know, you can pinch and zoom and, and really just be microscopic about all the little tiny details of something. But, you know, there have been a few times that people weren't happy with their pieces and have sent them back and it doesn't feel good. Yeah. 
Yeah. It doesn't, you know, and in some cases they were right. You know, I could have done a better job soldering. Maybe there was one little tiny pinhole or, you know, for whatever reason, every once in a while, somebody's stone falls out. I don't know why. Um, yep. They you know. punch someone with the ring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've seen things come back and like, I don't know what you're doing in your daily life, but <laughs> not any defect on my craftsmanship. <laughs> <laughs> just not i had this one customer she bought these earrings for four hundred dollars and this was in the 90s and you know for me that was a lot of money and whatever reason she had buyer's remorse i don't know but they were also a pair that i had used have my photographer take an image of when i apply to shows we have to have um in the back of the day they were slides like the ones you'd load in the carousel and that's how art fairs would be juried but now it's all done digitally at any rate this woman had bought like they were so high-end that they were one of my jury pieces and they were post earrings and she literally had bent the post off on purpose and broke it and then sent it back so that she wouldn't have to pay for it and I thought that is really unnecessary <laughs> yeah you could have just said, I've hit some financial hardship. It turns out I don't love these. What She had seen them in person. Anyway, it does happen and it never feels good. Yeah, how we're cruel to each other is a whole, I mean, that's a, a whole other realm. Um, speaking with, uh, uh, in another interview with uh, Lauren Scott and Alex Alexopoulos, who both work in the industry, in the, sorry, in the hospitality industry, uh, in restaurants have spoken about just how more cruel and awful and rude people have become in the last two or three years in restaurants, uh, threatening not to tip if, th if things aren't perfect. Lauren's reply is, this is my life. You're, you're telling me I don't get to eat. I don't get to live because the napkin was sideways. And how her sense of identity in her work um, how they're tied up as with anybody and everybody who does and cares about their work uh, and how mm -hmm. cruel we are, how, how thoughtlessly cruel we are. And we don't even realize it because of course we all hate it when it's done to us. We right. just don't see it. We don't see, uh, we don't have the empathy to see right. across the, uh, across the jobs. Yeah. And I think in that instance too, you know, those people feel like some lack of control in their life where here they are and they have someone who's um, a target audience and, and can't leave and are that critical and that entitled, you know, to really expect this amount of perfectionism in the service industry instead of saying, well, I can imagine you're understaffed because it is the pandemic and people don't want to put their lives on the line, you know, or wow, you know, you, it took longer for my food to come out because you're the only one working here. That must yeah. be really hard for you. An idea that I really like is that all made objects should be both beautiful and useful. Um, and how we define beauty and how we define use, I think, depends on our experience and and uh, how much we've thought about them. So I'm curious uh, your thoughts about the beautiful in what you make. Does it have a place? What do you think of, of this quotation from Eva Zeisel, uh quotes Cyril Smith, a an MIT person, professor perhaps, I'm not quite sure what he did, that man's capacity for aesthetic enjoyment may have been his most practical characteristic. 
for nearly all the industrial useful properties of matter and ways of shaping materials had their origins in the playful search for beauty. So beauty is at the root of discovery of the world around us. And beauty is what makes we makes us want to live. I can relate to that quote. And I think for, for anybody who works with their hands, builds with their hands, designs something that is that is functional and aesthetically pleasing, we can relate to that because that's what drives us. But I think there is a smaller percentage of the population who values that. You know, there are a lot of people now who who are sort of driven, you know, it's this disposable culture of, you know, I'm not going to like this next year, so I'm not going to pay for something that's made well. But there are still many people out there that appreciate things that are functional and and well-made and aesthetically pleasing. And I think it's to just find your market and, you know, build up a clientele who appreciate handmade items that, that are functional and aren't mass produced and aren't made by a machine or a robot in a factory. Yeah, I'm beginning to think uh, our as a species, our main problem is that we prefer more over better. And um, that theme of, uh, yes, we have the, the Walmarts are successful rather, and they're focused on more, having more stuff in your life versus the like the corner store craftsman, so to speak, the person that you know who spends an enormous amount of time making, a, making something particularly useful and beautiful. So would you use the term beautiful to describe what you do or what you're aiming for? What what would be the, the best adjective? Yeah, I think for a lot of my pieces, I would describe them as beautiful. Not all of them by any means, because I think a lot of them are very, maybe minimalist or simplistic. But I think beauty is really, it's such a subjective term, right? But I feel like for the most part, a lot of the jewelry I make is beautiful, but I wouldn't describe everything I make as beautiful. And certainly yeah. in carpentry, you know, when you get done, you have to just say, that's good enough. That's the best I can do given the circumstances. Like I have done my best and then let it go. But I don't know if I would describe, you know, the carpentry work that I do. I don't know if I would describe that as beautiful yet. Understood. I, I, it would be a little bit odd to say a crown molding is beautiful. We don't necessarily <laughs> use those terms or that front door is beautiful, unless it had certain characteristics that we more commonly associate with beauty. Right. I think Smith is trying to use that the concept of beauty in a more general way, in the beauty of the natural world, in the beauty of... Well, I'm not quite sure what, because you're very right. It is very subjective, uh, and it really does vary, not just culturally, but also individually. But in that pursuit of um, of what we do, uh, I I think it should be in everything that we do. <laughs> I, I think agree. there resides happiness and the joy of that creation. Yeah. You at the end of the day, when you, um, Mark Clement used the term snap fit in his. Well, a, a snap fit when when he would finish something that would go together just right he, he says he would shout snap fit and <laughs> uh, 
that was to me that's his joy in the beauty of that moment of that the craftsmanship that comes off without any question that it's right there's no 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 tiny little pinhole in the solder there's no you just it's a snap fit you can walk away from it it's complete and i think that's the the concept of beauty that uh, smith is is uh describing or at least it it's part of it and you've you've had those moments at the end of days or in the middle of the day when you can just mm -hmm. look back and go yes oh for mic, sure Last mic drop or whatever it is yeah. now i'm gonna i'm gonna use that we were we had to match this we closed there was a door that went to an attic and you know they when we removed the door uh, framed the wall in, put the drywall in, you know, got mudded and taped, painted over, but there wasn't chair rail there because there was a door originally. So we had taken off a piece of chair rail from the homeowner's laundry room and then had to kind of match it. And of course, you know, the stain was kind of sun faded. So we were matching old to new material and the scarf joined it and you know, holding a long board and scarf, you know, and getting it just right and nailing it in. I had that snap fit moment. And that is really rewarding and satisfying. It's beautiful. Snap fit. Creativity versus problem solving. If you could say that Pablo Picasso is a creative artist versus an electrician is a problem solver, um, are they really doing something truly different or, or do we just elevate problem solving that creates a work of art to some magical realm of creativity? Or is it simply that Picasso has posed a different question to problem solve than the electrician? Ooh, that's a really good one. You know, and I think, I think there's certain common factors to that, but I also see the differences in you know, electricity is essential and it creates an end result of a necessary function. And artwork sometimes is the only function is to be viewed and enjoy the beauty in it, but does it provide a necessity? I don't know if I'm going off on a tangent, but that's where I see the, I see some commonalities, but I also see some differences in that, in that quote. Well, in, I, I think you you can speak from experience, both as a jewelry maker, where I don't think you're doing anything different than Picasso. You're creating a work of art versus the carpentry work that you do, which you could say, you just need a, you just need a hand railing. You just need trim. It's, it's practical. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're doing, when you're doing the jewelry work and say, you've got this concept of beauty or of appreciation, aesthetic appreciation, you're using a different part of your brain or using a different, your hands in a different way? Do you feel a difference? It's a good question. I don't think I'm using my hands in a different way. I think just the end product is different, you know? And, and jewelry certainly isn't a necessity. It has a function and that you can wear it. You could certainly leave it on a shelf and look at it as an object of beauty, whereas a handrail serves a particular function, but is it a work of art unless you throw some creativity in there? You know, maybe you make some beautiful inlaid wood. Maybe you um, create like a different form or a carving out of it. And then does that elevate it to an object of beauty, which is also, mm. you know, has a function. 
Do you have a sense of how you how you throw creativity, to use your, your phrase? How do you throw creativity into your jewelry making? Oh, how do I throw? Um, I guess it's like cooking. So on my workbench, I may have all these little bits of random scraps or cut off pieces of wire, different shapes, little bits of gemstones. And then and then the way that I assemble it all and it comes together is a little bit like a recipe if you're cooking something. And so for me, that's where that's where the creativity comes in is sort of building and assembling all these things where they come together in a different way. It's very similar to other conversations I've had in terms of you have a, not just on your workbench, but also in your head, a whole bunch of different materials that then get recombined into different ways, into different, mm -hmm. that you may not, that you may have done before or may not. Like little components. You know, when I think about, you know, that bed that you, I don't know if it was last winter or the winter before, where there was a lot, a lot of carving in it. And kind of the same thing where extremely creative, extremely detailed, and, and yet functional. But that's a perfect example of one of your pieces, right? Where that creativity is in high, you know, that's the primary focus. It will be a functional object, but the, you know, the surface, the surface treatment of it too. I, I recall a, a lovely cartoon showing an architect in front of the pyramids in the desert. And um, the, uh, the architect is explaining to someone, well, the, the original client request was for a sphere of water. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've had those, you've, you've had those conversations. Okay, you want a sphere of water the size of the pyramids in the desert, um, not being held up by anything. No, no, I've got a better idea. Let me sell you on a pyramid of stone so that it actually can stand there. But no, the client desires for something that's truly impossible. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, how, 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 <laughs> how you negotiate from the desire for the sphere of water to the pyramid of stone by uh, gently educating or gently uh, uh, helping the uh, the client understand the limits of the materials, the um, the, the true beauty in the materials, uh, and uh, <laughs> and so on and so forth. But uh, now I'm wandering off into other thoughts. I, I should be very careful with your time, Paula, and thank you enormously. This was a really fun conversation and a lot of great points, gave me a lot to think about and chew on and really be um, reflective and, and introspective about, you know, working with your hands in different capacity. And thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you.